I'm Emily Elchel. And I'm Mariah Larkin. And this is Mental. Where we're rethinking crazy. Our guest this week has asked to remain anonymous, and so she will be going by the name Elle. Elle is originally from Singapore. She went to college in the States and is now studying on a master's in London. I'll let her tell you the rest. All right. <laughs> All right. Yes. yes. Okay, we're good. Yeah. Yay. Okay. Go for it. So what was your experience with mental health in Singapore. Singapore. Um, Yeah, I think mental health, there is some increasing awareness and there are some great activists who are kind of working more to make um, mental health issues better understood. But I think generally the society is quite conservative and people tend to kind of mask whatever problems they're going through. People are pretty stoic about not revealing certain things. And suicide is illegal in Singapore. So if you attempt suicide under the penal code, and I just read this, um, 309, you can be, and let me just pull this up, you can be punished with jail for up to a year or with a fine or both if you attempt suicide and you're not successful. Um, by law, this can happen to you. It's not enforced, but it's there in the penal code. So the good news is Parliament met earlier in the month and they're reviewing this. So they're kind of relooking, um, <laughs> maybe not criminalizing suicide, which I'm really against. Um, and I think I'll share a bit of my personal experience with that. So apparently, even though very few people have actually been prosecuted under this law, there have been prosecutions. Ugh. I think maybe like one a year, something like that. And it's presumably, or what they say ostensibly, for the safety of the person. But I do believe you can put in other safeguards. Yeah, so I'm glad that they're relooking this yeah. um, this law. So I grew up I grew up in Singapore. I'm from Singapore and I grew up in a very in a really wonderful family and I think that and kind of the idea that mental health issues existed was really foreign to me, I think, growing up as a young person. And I was always a very good student. I was very hardworking, very conscientious, like a little bit perfectionistic, um, very competitive, maybe certain things that I could have picked out now that I look back, you know, more prone to anxiety or more prone to take myself very seriously when it comes to work or life. Um, but nothing kind of, you know, I was also a very good student, very, you know, had good friends, a good family support, and this kind of never occurred to me. Um, until I was in senior high school back in Singapore I'm in a local public school and I it was kind of the two years before you decide that you're going to go to college um, it's a big step that you're taking very intense two years where you have to do very well mm-hmm. kind of deciding what path you're going to take in life and because I was in a very good high school there was kind of a push as well like I knew that I wanted to go abroad to study and because my family didn't have the means to support me to go overseas I would have to get a scholarship from either a local company or a government board or from the university. So I think these these fully funded scholarships are really competitive. Right. And 
so I, I put myself under, I think, an, under a lot of pressure to do very well. Um, and one thing that is asked on all these scholarship forms, at least in Singapore, not in the US, where I studied eventually, is you have to disclose your mental health issues. And I think this is kind of like a, a safeguard that they put in for themselves, that they don't award the scholarship to someone who is kind of incapable of seeing it through. <laughs> um, so this is in a contract, and you do have to disclose um you know, whatever mental health issues that you have. And how a scholarship works in Singapore is what happened to me was I signed up for one and they pay for your entire school fees and and where I study in the U.S., which is great, Uh, really wonderful. I'm very grateful. And then in return, you work for that company or for that government board for a stipulated amount of time. And for myself, that's six years. And why I can talk about this is because my six years are done (laughs) over. Um, No mishaps happened. Um, And and, and we're good to go. But kind of when I was 17 or 18 and preparing for this, um, when I think when you're 17 or 18, you also kind of have romantic interests for the first time. And so I was kind of juggling that kind of newfound, you know, discovering sexual identity or sexuality um, at that point with uh, this pressure cooker of an education system. And and um, I had my first ever relationship and then that did not end well. And I think overcome by kind of hormones and this kind of overwhelming situation, I became very depressed and I did not realize that I was depressed. So I became very listless, did not participate in class. Um, I was very, very upset and I started cutting myself um, and I would wear like big sweaters to school to kind of cover the marks on my arms. Um, And I wasn't eating and sleeping very well. And at that point, I didn't know what was wrong with me, right? I thought... You know, it was like, what is going on? Right. Um, I was just very overcome and and not engaged with school at all, which, which was very against kind of my usual kind of cheerful, very involved, committed self. Um, so it came to a point, I think, after a couple months of this, that I was like, oh, you know, I'm never going to, uh, you know, I, I'm not lovable. You know, I'm never going to make it through this period of my life. So what I did was, um, I think I was, was I 17? I was 17 or 18. What I did was I wrote letters to my family. Um, I wrote them in envelopes. I put them on my desk in my room. I went to, like, I raided, like, the medicine cabinet at home, and I took everything I could find. Like, I took, I think I took, like, 40 or 50 pills. And then I locked the door of my room, and I went to sleep. And there was school the next day, obviously, and when I did not wake up on time, my and my mom came to my room and found it locked. And I think she got very, very worried, and then she unlocked the door and found that I had written letters, and I had taken all these pills. And I was in such a daze at that point, having taken a lot of pills, <laughs> that I cannot really remember exactly what happened, but she... Um, they immediately got me to the hospital. I can't remember if, if, I think they drove me there. And we went to the emergency department and it was very bright, fluorescent lighting. And I remember the doctor asking like, in a really gruff way, like kind of disbelieving and kind of condescending, like, why'd you do this? You know, why'd you do this at all? You know, like what a stupid thing to do. And I think, I mean, at that point, I didn't process it very well because I was kind of in a daze, so it just kind of went over my head. So what they did was they um, had to pump my stomach, so they put a tube down through my nose and they pumped my stomach for the rest of the afternoon. And I was kind of drifting in and out of consciousness. Um, It was only kind of maybe about a day later that I was put on a drip and kind of fed through that drip because I couldn't take any kind of solid foods at that point and so I was in a big ward 
by myself and my parents tried to come as often as they could and I think they were very confused because we never talk about this I don't know if it's culturally kind of you know um, something you just don't talk about or they were just kind of so shocked that their daughter would do this in the first place and in fact since then we've never really talked about it even though we're very close it's something I think in my life that we've just never discussed and I have two younger sisters and I think they kind of had a sense of what was happening but we've never really talked about that either that incident specifically we've talked I think in general terms about dealing with depression or you know but never suicide um, or suicide attempts I think they've just kind of wanted to shelve that part um, of my life but what they did do I think they didn't know how to talk about it was they bought me three blank journals and they just like gave it to me um, because I think they knew that I liked writing so they just kind of gave it to me and so the next day when I was lucid and I, you know, kind of gained consciousness and I'd woken up and they had pumped my stomach and kind of figured out, okay, she's stable, um, two fully uniformed policemen came into the ward um, because of the law <laughs> that it's illegal to attempt suicide. And if you imagine you're an 18-year-old or a 17-year-old, you've always been a good student, you've never done anything illegal in your life. And to realize that this was illegal and to see like that future that you can imagine for yourself just crumbling at the thought that, oh my God, are they going to prosecute me? Am I going to go to court? Will this be a mark on my life forever? You know, it's a huge thing for an 18-year-old to go through. Um, I think because I was a juvenile at that point, um, they didn't, they obviously didn't bring me to court, they didn't prosecute it, but I did have to sign a statement. And I think... I don't know if the statement is still out there. <laughs> um, they, it never. I was never charged, so there's no kind of blemish on you know my career or anything like that. But I did have to sign a statement, but I don't recall writing the statement or giving any statement in particular. So I'm not sure if they just gathered it from a doctor and kind of written something very brief. But I was. I wish I had someone there in the room to be like, you should read that. You know. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what the statement said? No. Until this day, I don't know what the statement said. I. But I was a freaked out teenager, so I signed it. Of course. And, and they left. And I think for a couple of months, I was very scared that they would return. Um, they never did, and they never have. And that was, you know, more than ten years ago. So I'm presumably that's never gonna come back. Um, so it was really terrifying and there was no one else and I don't recall anyone else in the room with me not my parents or anyone else but someone that I did have whom I still remember to this day was a wonderful social worker and I wish I had her name she was kind of that main support that I was able to talk to about things that I could not disclose to my parents or was embarrassed of talking to my parents about and I think I was in the hospital for about a week and I was kind of you know worried about like oh my god is this a lot of money you know um and i you know now in retrospect i think it was manageable um i don't think it was like a huge amount of money for my parents to bear but it was something that i was very worried about at the time but i had this wonderful social worker who came in and we just sit there and just talk to me and we, she was like you know we don't have to talk about this exactly and she would give me books to read that we could talk about the books instead so you know it was kind of um a lateral way of approaching like a huge traumatic incident that had happened to a young person. So I'm really grateful that, you know, despite how kind of the criminal aspect was very badly handled, there was a wonderful social worker who was there with me to kind of walk me through this 
really weird time. Um, but because I was young, I think they were deciding if they ought to put me on medication. Um, in the end, I decided not to, but unfortunately, I also did not have any follow-up sessions with a social worker beyond this period. So I went back to school immediately, right? And I think... How immediately? Like immediately after I was discharged. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so no time to... So even though I told myself I'm fine, you know, um, I had talked to this person, she had made me feel better for that moment, I threw myself straight back into school and to work. Um, even though I was fine for the next year ahead, I did very well in school and I got a scholarship. I wish I had had some sort of follow-up because it does come back. Yeah. And I only realized, I think, a bit later that this is something that I'm going to have to deal with on a long-term basis. You know, I thought, oh, mm. this is a one-off thing. I'm fine now. You know, I've talked to somebody. Um, I'll be okay. So I, I did very well in school and I managed to get a scholarship. And on that forum, when they asked if I had any mental health issues, we were like, uh, all right, we're just going to lie. Right, so I said no, um, because also I had never been formally diagnosed at that point. So they were like, "Okay, we can fudge this a little bit," because yeah, she hasn't. You know, she hasn't been diagnosed with a mental illness. Um, so I got a scholarship and they paid my way to go to the U.S., to a very good school in the U.S. to study. And so I did. And in my sophomore year, in my second year of university, which I absolutely loved, um, I was having a lot of fun there, really having really good, engaging seminars and classes. I really, really liked my friends who were there. So in my second year, I was like, I'm going to do like such great things. So I, 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 instead of four classes a semester, which is kind of normal workload, I opted to do five, right? I opted to do four and then audit another, another class like full on. And I, beyond that, I also decided, okay, I will do like lots of extracurriculars because I really love these causes that I'm a part of. So I took on two kind of leadership roles in groups that I was working with on campus. So I w it was a big workload and it was a lot of pressure. And even though I, I could manage that, and I think this is something that I, that I finally understood after it happened a second time, that while I can handle work and education stress well, it's not good when combined with toxic romantic relationships mm -hmm. like that is a bad cocktail for my mental health <laughs> and and so about halfway through sophomore year and I think this is a part of my life when coming from a more conservative even repressed society I was exploring my sexuality a lot more and um, having a lot of romantic relationships kind of one after the other and some ended very badly and and because of that I think it was a huge blow to you know, whatever was working in my brain at that point and comp compound it with the stress of a lot of things that I had taken on during that period. So after I think kind of two or three consecutive very toxic relationships, um, I found myself in exactly the same situation, right? So skimming class, not going out of my dorm room, not wanting to spend time with people at all, kind of very withdrawn, very reticent, not eating, um, you know, just kind of looking very disheveled um, and, and a mess and, and very obsessed with these romantic relationships, very fixated 
on them. And at the same time, because because I was a very good student, very anxious that I was not going to do well at all. Like really bad panic attacks um, where I would like sit under a table and just cry, you know. So at that point, two of my very good friends, they had they staged an intervention. They came to my dorm room, they sat on the floor and they were like, you know, we think we you really need to see a counselor. And I was really resistant. I was like, no, I, you know, I'm fine. I don't need to see one. I'm just going to get through this. They were like, no, you are in a terrible state. <laughs> like, terrible. Um, and you, you're usually very high-functioning. You're a fantastic student. This is not normal. So what I did, and I think the way that mental health issues are dealt with in at least that, that university I was in and in the U.S., was markedly different from back home in Singapore. So the psych services office, um, which are free to all students, they can just go there, I think, for 10 sessions, completely free. They It was located in one of the regular kind of school buildings um, on campus, so it would look like you're just going to talk to your professor. It, there was no stigma attached. And the psychologist that, that was just happened to be in that day, she was wonderful. So I went to her office. It was this lovely big office with books, you know, overlooking Mm -hmm. a green spot in the campus, really warm and welcoming, you know, full of like a library. And I sat down and she was like, you know, let's let's just talk, you know, what's happening with you right now. And we slowly kind of unpacked and she taught me what triggers were because I didn't even know that you could be triggered (laughs) by a certain thing. She taught me what triggers were she kind of destigmatized it for me, you know, like, you know, it's that it's okay to be an international student coming to a country very far away and to struggle, you know, with certain things and to find certain things more difficult than usual. And and I, we had a lot of talks and we kind of, you know, slowly picked apart um, what triggers I might have, what to do if I'm having a panic attack. And I was kind of very resistant to talking at first. So it kind of gives like right. one word answers, you know, but, but slowly I think she she was very patient and we took a long route to talk about and I think it helped that she explained mental health at like a very basic level so she also I think she evaluated me and she's like okay I think we should tie you up with a psychiatrist as well just to evaluate if you need medication and so they did um the psychiatrist was okay he's not a psychologist he's kind of just there to kind of yeah kind of look at my mental state and be like okay take this medication right so he did put me on he put me on wellbutrin first um that did not work i think for me it was a newer drug and it very very effective in certain people but i think in many cases it's kind of a trial and error to see how a person responds to medication so that didn't work at all um so I would just go home and go into my dorm room and lock myself in and just watch the most simul- like stimulating TV shows I could find. <laughs> so I kind of forget like the shitty state I was in. Um, so I would watch like I I just watched every season of Lost. <laughs> like I think that was the most you know engaging television at that point. So I just I would just binge watch. I would just not go to class. Just binge watch. Lost, um, and and eventually they put me in Prozac, so two two tablet two capsules a day of Prozac, I think, which was pretty high dose at that point, so two a day, and that was more effective um, for me. At the same time, the school is very supportive in that they were like, okay, you're you're taking more than enough classes anyway, so if you drop one, that's not going to make any difference to your grade, so just drop one, you know, mm-hmm. like ditch the pride, just drop one class. <laughs> 
So there were all these kind of safety nets in place for a student who was struggling, which I'm very thankful for. In the end, I, I passed everything. Um, and I managed to submit essays later that term, which I also passed. So that kind of tided me over that very difficult semester. And because there was a medication, I think my mental health kind of stabilized after maybe two or three months. I could find that, you know, I'm back to kind of a semblance of, yeah, I can go to class, I can, I can function, I can be with people. So I'm very thankful to, to those two friends who were like, you need to see a psychologist. <laughs> um, you know, if anyone would want to be kind of supportive of people who are struggling and know that they can't take up to take on the burden of being a psychologist for that person because it is really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, psychologists also have safeguards in place for their own mental health um, to have supervisions every week to kind of unpack the very difficult things that they're dealing with. So, right. you know, always kind of put your friends in the safe hands of a professional rather than because I think initially some of my friends tried to do that themselves and then found themselves like okay it's very hard to deal with that and so I think you know if you do want to be a support for that person maybe not try to be a hero yourself and try to like you know be that psychologist for that person but you know recommend that they talk to someone professional and then beyond that if they need help then and you can be there right you can be their supportive friend but you don't yeah. need to be their therapist sometimes the best thing you can do for your friend is yeah. to and for your friendship and for yeah. your friendship <laughs> yes is to is to suggest they go to a professional yeah. for help yeah I think so and I would not you know judge a friend at all if they said this is and I mean now that I'm older as well right. you know I'm like that, yeah I'm not gonna unburden myself upon you that's just too much I mean in return I mean I would also find it very difficult to fully <laughs> be a psychologist for someone you know yeah. who is struggling so I think a combination of both things is 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 kind of optimum yeah oh yeah don't don't push your friends away yeah yeah and and I think also you know someone with, with mental health issues doesn't mean that he or she cannot be your friend as well right and I think sometimes you know I know when I'm struggling with certain things I also want to help my friends with their problems, you know. You know, you can be struggling with something in your personal life, but also want to be plugged into what your friends are struggling with. And, and so they're often not the same thing, right. you know. And you can often maybe provide a perspective and still be a friend, you mm -hmm. know. Um, so it doesn't mean that once you're going through a difficult period that, oh my God, this person is helpless and cannot do anything else. Right. You know, you, you're still a person. You're still a person. You're still a yeah, human. Exactly. So I find that, you know, right now, if my friends are struggling with certain things, I'm like, yes, please tell me. I would love to help or, you know, talk you through something. And having had people talk me through things, you know, hopefully can apply that. And I think um, in Singapore especially, we have this oh, just get over it, method of dealing with mental health. Like, you know, just snap yourself out of it. You know, just, why can't you just, just do something and, and you'll feel better. Um, but after 10 years, you know, like, you can't just snap out of this. <laughs> right. You know, and it comes and it goes. You'll have great periods of your life where um, the black dog, to quote another mental health professional who described depression as a black dog who follows you around, and sometimes it's not there, and sometimes it's there. Um, and sometimes the black dog will be there. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it won't. Mm -hmm. um, but when it's there, you can. You don't have to kick it. You 
I'm gonna like you know stroke it and be like okay what can we do with you now <laughs> you know <laughs> um, and so there are cycles and some periods are very difficult and some periods are easier so you learn how to negotiate and you learn how to be like okay I'm having a panic attack what can I do about this and you learn how to pick up on those things and and it takes some time to learn how to deal with it so I was on medication for for quite a few years for five five to seven years I was on Prozac and then slowly kind of weaned off as I learned different ways of dealing with different situations and um, different. I've had a couple of therapists over the years. Different people at different approaches. So you know, different methods, and I think different psychologists, as they get to know you better, will give you different kind of tool sets. So now I know when something happens, like okay, I have different toolkits that I can deal with. So I haven't felt I haven't felt suicidal in a long time since that second very bad episode in in college. I've had some episodes where I've had panic or anxiety attacks, but they've been more manageable. Um, And I still deal with those, and they do come in cycles. But I think now I'm older, you know, kind of able to handle those situations a bit better. Yeah, do you have a specific, do you have a way that you usually get yourself out of that? Or is it having that broad toolkit from years of different kinds of therapies? I think it's cumulative. And and I think um, because I'm a very planny person, mm-hmm. and sometimes having a plan helps. Like, okay, I'm going to go for yoga on Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. And this will be my anchor. So I know that even if I'm having a very difficult week, I will have that one hour where I'm so focused on something that I will forget about those things and I tend to feel calmer and happier after I go for yoga for example mm-hmm. right so having that kind of fix for me at least I don't know if this works for everybody but individually for me that helps and even and now I know even if I don't feel like it I have to make myself go because it does help to calm me down and it's an anchor be like oh I, if even if I did not accomplish anything else I did three things this week which is I went for yoga three times mm-hmm. and, like that's an accomplishment like I did that you know Um, and also I think you learn to be less hard on yourself and I think this happens with a lot of overachieving people who think that they have to do a lot of things and don't realize that they're already doing a lot of things and try to do load themselves over and beyond because they think this is what they need to be doing so now when I plan my time I put in everything now then I look at it and be like, okay, this is what I think I can do. But actually what I know I can do is I have to take out two things from this weekly schedule. And that is optimal. So always kind of underestimating rather than overestimating what Mm -hmm. you can do, which I find very helpful. Like even at work, I'll be like, I think I can do six things a week. But actually I know what I can do is I can do four things. And four things is actually normal. That is what most people do. So I will aim to do, I will just program in four. And then usually I will end up with free time and then I can do number five and then that's an accomplishment, right? So so it's like basic project management of my life, right? <laughs> like um, how much can you handle? So that's how I've kind of... Yeah, it sounds so simple, but it really it yeah. comes with time. It comes with knowing yourself. Yeah, because sometimes, you know, you think, yeah, I'm really efficient. And I know, you know, sometimes I know, and, and, but you forget to program in breaks for right. yourself. Sometimes you just really need you shouldn't fill up your whole week that you don't have any empty space. And sometimes you do need that empty space in your life just 
to be like, oh, I can go get a coffee. And that's also an accomplishment, you know, yeah. uh, to, to value this kind of small thing. So I think this is kind of the way that I've been helping to keep myself on track. So it doesn't always work. Sometimes you don't go for yoga. You know, sometimes you don't do the things that you want to do. It's a thin line. Sometimes you just want to curl up at home and cry. And that's okay. You need to forgive yourself. Yeah. Sometimes you don't, but you learn. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I haven't felt... The good thing is that even though I have felt depressed, you know, and that, that happens, I felt anxious very recently as well, you know. But I have not felt suicidal, and and to me that's like good. That's good, you that's know. That's big. Yeah. That that's a big thing, and I think I haven't felt um, maybe certain thoughts at work maybe like three years ago maybe. You entertain that, but never kind of to the point where you're actually afraid for yourself. So I'm very grateful that you know I I know that in my case it's not a very extreme case where I'm dealing with illnesses that need more care, and. I'm very thankful that certain things I can manage on my own, and I know some people do need to be supported more. So with anything, it's worth its spectrum. I'm glad that I had the experience of what mental health is like in an ideal situation where you cared for it in university for example mm-hmm. as opposed to policemen going into your ward and I know that happens to people who have many many suicide attempts in Singapore and uh, I, I don't know how they they handle that it's really difficult so I really hope they kind of relook that part of the penal code and at least offer people more support. I mean, there was a big discussion about mental health in Singapore recently because um, an 11-year-old who was not doing well in school jumped off a building. And because he didn't get, like, 80 marks. And that really shook, I think, a lot of parents Mm -hmm. in Singapore about, you know, how they work their children, how the school system works. And I think that was a kind of a big wake up yeah wake up call that such a young person could be feeling very suicidal at that age you know for something that will eventually be inconsequential um, but feels very big at that point you know grades in school and not realizing that there are many paths you can take you can go into vocational training you can go into technical training you don't have to be academic you can still be a success in many other ways but at 11 and I mean that really that was such a big, like, you know, can you imagine being 11 and not being able to handle these things? So I think that was a big, and maybe that influence kind of relooking this this part of the law. I, I don't know, but that was something that happened mm. that was um, very difficult for our community to handle, I think. So I hope that people keep talking about this and, you know, that it's okay to feel upset or down, that, you know, you don't have to be afraid to get help for it yeah 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 i hope it continues that conversation not just in that one part of the penal code but that people are more encouraged to go and actually seek help yeah and and suicide is really yeah something that's not discussed until it happens and then it's too late yeah it's so lonely especially when you're a young person and i really feel for anyone who's so 
yeah I'm really for really wonderful social workers like the one that I had and maybe not you know uniformed policemen so that's you know fingers crossed that this will be relooked and that they'll not criminalize suicide anymore that would be a huge step in Singapore I think and that would be a really wonderful one I'll be very happy if if that's passed yeah, yeah. thank you so Yay! much this was this was lovely totally <laughs> Mental was created by me, Mariah Larkin, and me, Emily Altschul, with production assistance from Asa Secker and scoring by Karis Dan. If you like what you've heard, go ahead and check us out on iTunes. Please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It'll really help us out. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Mental, Rethinking Crazy, because you're not crazy.